Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we're going to continue our chat with Dr Alastair Munro. He's a paediatric registrar and currently a senior clinical research fellow in paediatric infectious diseases based at Southampton. He joined myself and Tom Cromarty last week to discuss the COVID virus and the vaccines that are available. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, it's worth going back to have a listen to that first. Anyway, let's get started. Um, So then moving on, hopefully, into... um an interest, really interesting uh, topic of, of vaccinations in generally and in children. Um, so I suppose just a quick summary from yourself into the types of vaccinations that we have um, and how they've come about before we kind of move more into um, a bit more into about their, their effectiveness and, and, and the safety data there. So just, just an introduction into the vaccines to start with. Okay, I mean, for for vaccine COVID nineteen vaccines generally, there are now uh, four different approved uh, types of technology. Only two of which are currently available um, in the UK, or although three of them are specifically approved in the UK. So the one most people will be familiar with is the newest type of technology, which is mRNA vaccines, and um, these vaccines contain uh, messenger RNA, which is uh, a code that tells your body how to make a protein. And these uh, mRNA codes in the COVID-19 vaccines encode for the spike protein that we talked about at the very beginning of the the podcast that's found on the outside of the virus. And this is the antigen that helps your body recognize the virus and know to attack it. So uh, for example, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine both uh, are mRNA that encodes for this spike protein that then uh, teaches your body how to um, uh, recognize the virus and attack it. The other type that's um, approved in the UK is uh, adenovirus vector vaccines like the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. So this, uh, that particular vaccine contains a chimpanzee adenovirus that's been rendered replication deficient. So it's alive, but it can't replicate. It can't grow at all. And that virus also contains the DNA that encodes for the spike protein again. So again, it's a, it's a sort of a slightly different mechanism of giving your body a code that allows it to make this protein so that it can then recognize the virus. Um, other vaccines that have been approved and used around the world include um, inactivated virion. So this is just dead virus. So you just take a copy of SARS-CoV-2 and you kill it or smash it up a bit and then <laughs> inject it in. Um, there, there is one that's... Um, Uh, under evaluation at the moment, I think by the MHRA called the Valneva vaccine, which may be available in the UK soon, but but currently isn't. But there's loads around the world like Sinovac, um, which have been used widely. Uh, And then the most recent one that's been approved in the UK and the EU is a a purified protein. And this is the Novavax vaccine. And this is probably, uh, you know, one of the most familiar ones to us as pediatricians. This, This is just a purified protein antigen. So this is the spike protein. Uh, It's delivered with something called an adjuvant, 
that helps your body recognize it's supposed to be attacking a protein and and like you know it acts as like a danger signal um and uh yes that hopefully that will be available uh soon so it's it's been approved but I, I don't think there's any vaccine in the uk available to use yet so those those are the sort of the different technologies available F- for children only one of those has been approved in the uk uh which is the Pfizer vaccine and that's uh, at a at the same doses for adults in 12 to 15 year olds and then in 5 to 11 year olds it's um, at one third of the dose that's used in adults so it's a 10 microgram dose for 5 to 11 year olds and then it's 30 micrograms from 12 year olds upwards. Fantastic and so the um, the the vaccines that are used in children then the Pfizer vaccine how um how has the evidence borne out you know from studies and how, how deep how robust is that evidence of their kind of effectiveness in children yeah it's it's pretty robust um there i mean given we were using the the same dose in 12 to 15 year olds as we've been using in 16 plus i, I don't think there was any serious questions about how effective it would prove to be because we've just got you know extensive um, real world evidence now, as well as from randomized controlled trials of how effective the, the Pfizer vaccine is, uh, in adults. So that, that was really no surprise. I think there was, you know, probably more of a question about whether the reduced dose for younger children would be as effective. And one of the really, um, uh, good pieces of news, great pieces of news was when they did the first studies, which are what are what's called immunobridging studies. So you take whatever the immunity uh, threshold was, the immunity endpoints in in one group, and you say, right, well, if if you can meet those same levels of antibodies or whatever in this group, then we'll consider it to be you know as effective. So um, the the studies in children were mainly looking for immunobridging rather than trying to prove that it reduced X number of cases or whatever. But the these studies were extremely reassuring because although we gave children aged uh, five to eleven one third of the dose, actually their immunogenicity results were as good or better than 12 to 15 year olds given given the higher dose so um the the expectation was certainly that it would be just as just as effective for for the, that group um and uh from the trial evidence that's come out it does seem to be you know just as effective in reducing symptomatic infection as the higher dose was uh, in the the older teens, and again, for particularly for the older teenagers, now there's quite a, a lot of real world evidence, mainly from the US, um, backing that up, showing uh, uh, you know a significantly reduced risk of severe illness, uh, hospitalisation, and so forth um, from uh, a full course of the uh, the vaccine. Okay, and is there any reason why just the just the Pfizer one has been? Um recommended for children and not the Moderna version or the other uh, adenovirus ones? Um, so the uh, it's quite complex. So the, the Moderna vaccine um, uh, has some uh, question marks hanging over it for, for younger adults. So there are some countries that have stopped giving um, the Moderna vaccine to people under the age of 30. And the reason for that is that um, there's been identified an increased risk of a complication called myocarditis from mRNA vaccines in young adults, but 
and teenagers, but really particularly in uh, males after the second dose. Um, it's still a very rare complication, but but m- more common than we would expect most uh, most vaccines to have this kind of side effect. Now, um, when the evidence has been pulled apart, actually, it what you can see is that the rates of myocarditis are much higher following the Moderna vaccine than the Pfizer vaccine after the second dose. Now, the question is whether this is a dose-dependent effect because the Moderna dose for an adult is 100 micrograms per dose, whereas obviously the, the Pfizer vaccine is 30 micrograms. So um, I think the preference there is for, for Pfizer. For the adenovirus vector vaccines, there's obviously been this question over um, the risk of very rare risk, but of a very serious complication um, of um, thrombocytopenic thrombosis. So um, when you have low platelets, but you clot. Um, and some of those cases have been quite severe. And um, you'll, you'll probably both remember that on that basis, um, the advice was that for ad- adults under the age of 40 in the UK should uh, preferably receive uh, uh, the Pfizer vaccine or an mRNA vaccine over um, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. And again, this risk is very, very rare, but um, you know, it's a serious event. So those tri- the, there have been trials done in children for but for both the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine and the Janssen vaccine, which is the other adenovirus vector vaccine. Um, but a- as far as I'm aware, the, there's not been any um, mo- significant moves forward for licensure in children for, for those vaccines. There are other vaccines who are um, currently doing trials in children. So Novavax, um, I think is a, a good way through its pediatric trials. And uh, the Valneva vaccine, again, is also starting some pediatric trials. So there should be, there will be more vaccines in future available. But at the moment, the best option for children is um, definitely the Pfizer vaccine. Great. Well, I like simplicity and only having one option that works for me very nicely. Um, so just to clarify as well, um, the risk of myocarditis, which you know, I hear generally is greater from having coronavirus kind of natural infection itself rather than the vaccine is true of most ages. It's only with that specific Moderna vaccine after the second dose in a small group of males in a specific band of ages. Well, I mean, the problem is trying to... uh, there's a real range of estimates for how common it, it is. Under most estimates, yes, the, the risk of myocarditis from, in, from infection would be more common than the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. Um, but yeah, it's really specifically after the second dose in young males of mRNA vaccine but, and is also uh, appears to be much higher from the Moderna vaccine than the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah. Okay, great. And... What about the, the the gap between doses of, of vaccines? Uh, does that have any effect on um, any any of the side effects and the the recommended um, gap between doses? Yes, it does. In fact, in fact it, ha- it affects quite a few things. So uh, one of the things we know from both laboratory evidence of immune markers and now from some real world observational evidence is that um, a longer delay between vaccines of um, ideally between sort of eight to 12 weeks gives you a better, a stronger immune response to the booster. 
But also there's now uh, evidence from abroad that a a delay between the two doses of the vaccines also reduces the risk of these complications of of myocarditis. So it seems like, you know, a a slightly longer duration uh, rather than the sort of three weeks, which was what was done in the clinical trials, um, gives you the best of all worlds because it provides you with better protection and it also reduces the rate of um, these already rare uh, adverse events that can occur. Super. And the vaccination of two doses and then a booster, um, do you want to just talk us a little bit about boosters and what the role of that is? Sure. Um, so boosters, um, the role of boosters has, has changed since Omicron because I think boosters were possibly being considered uh, a really useful adjunct for vulnerable groups um, to uh, boost protection from infection, um, but possibly being less important for younger people because the the absolute benefits were were relatively small. But we did see quite early on that um, protection against infection wanes quite quickly relatively quickly after your second dose. And, and so it, it seemed like a third dose was a really good idea, particularly for vulnerable groups. Now, the, the problem is that the Omicron variant uh, looks so different to the um, original uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus on which the vaccines were designed, that actually it, it eliminates the majority of protection you have ag- against getting infected after two doses. But a third dose uh, provides really substantial improvement in protection against infection and actually looks to provide quite a bit of ex- additional protection against um, hospitalization and death, e- even conditional on already having been infected. So booster doses look uh, much more important in the face of Omicron than they did before, although they did provide um, uh, substantial relative reduction in risk, the the absolute reductions previously were were small, whereas now they make a bigger difference. Um, for the the question really is once you get down to children, what is the benefit of boosters? Because you've taken a group that's all even before getting vaccinated, um, if we're you know if we're talking about otherwise healthy children, but even before getting vaccinated, th- their risk of being hospitalized or severe illness is is really small. You know, we're talking you know, less than, definitely less than one in a thousand cases would would be hospitalized. If you then vaccinate them, you're probably reducing that by at least another order of magnitude, even considering Omicron. Giving them a booster would reduce their chances of getting infected, but probably only significantly for a few months because we it seems quite likely that even after boosters the protection afforded against getting infected wanes relatively quickly when you're talking about uh older vulnerable people that is worthwhile if you can boost them just before a huge wave because if you reduce the risk by 50 percent, that's massive at a, at a population level that's massive for for younger children in terms of what that does for their risk it's really not very much so i think there's probably a much bigger question mark over the, the the potential need for boosters for children. 
but I'd say for most adults, they they look to be uh, they look to be really effective. M- much I think more effective than many people were anticipating they would be. Uh, and Omicron has probably made them even more worthwhile. That's great clarification. Thank you. And the differences between, as you say, there's effects of reducing uh, transmission or yeah, re- effects of reducing the ability to transmit the virus, as well as the other um, reducing hospitalizations and, and kind of deaths they're in different mechanisms. Is that correct? So uh, is that why there's a big difference between the two? sort of i mean uh, obviously biology is never quite never quite so simple but what the, the the theory is that most protection from getting infected is uh mediated by antibodies and particularly neutralizing antibodies in terms of protection against severe disease and death we think that's mainly through t cells and cellular immunity rather than humoral immunity what you can see even in the lab is that um, you get quite fast decay in levels of neutralizing antibodies after vaccination, and you get very different levels of antibody of neutralizing antibody response against different variants. For T cells, it's very different. The, the waning is very subtle, and actually, for most variants, there's very little, if any, difference in T cell responses. Uh, when you measure them in the lab, so the, th- the obviously b- both will impact each other in in real life. But in in a broad sense, what we think is that vaccinations' effects on neutralizing antibodies are what is driving the differences in your risk of getting infected when exposed. But the effects of immunization on T cells are what's modulating your risk of suffering severe disease or death. Uh, if you get infected. Great. So that looks like even with more mutations and and subsequent variants, that that um, kind of T cell response will be likely be maintained um, from that original vaccination. Yes. Yeah, we think so. Yeah. And the recommendations for different ages of children obviously has been having the vaccine has been staggered um and there seem to be i think earlier on um recommendations from the um the jcvi and then recommendations from the the royal college um are there you know do we have to look at children as i said as we've kind of mentioned earlier on a specific um health benefit and then also on a kind of wider um you know, general health benefit, talking about kind of physical and psychological health and all of that when we when we make decisions on whether children do have uh, vaccinations. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think we need to consider, you know, the, the totality of, of child health. I, I think what is difficult now is in the era of Omicron, trying to discern the, uh, the external benefits of, of vaccination because as we've discussed, the protection against getting infected is already much lower and is, after only two doses, is really very, very little. Uh, so two doses of a vaccine don't do very much at all um, to stop you getting infected with Omicron. And what that means is 
if you're trying to consider uh, days lost to school, for example, from uh, you know trying to reduce that by reducing transmission, it looks like vaccination does not do much for that for for children now. You know, without giving boosters, um, you know, which we, and we've already discussed the sort of the issues with that. It it doesn't seem like it will do much. So really, the the focus now is probably on determining well what is the benefit to the to the child as an individual? What is their individual health benefit to getting vaccinated? Which really boils down to how much are we going to reduce the risk of severe illness? Um, and that that comes down to two things. It comes down to obviously this severe illness from acute COVID-19, but also um, the post-COVID hyperinflammatory syndrome, PIMS-TS or, or MIS-C as it's known um, elsewhere. Um, which is the you know the other sort of main risk, particularly to children who are who are otherwise healthy, who are at such extraordinarily low risk from um, severe respiratory disease. So yeah, I I think in the era of Omicron, it boils much more down to the uh, determining the health risk to the individual than it perhaps did before, where two doses may have offered a substantial protection. Uh, uh, against transmission uh, and you know potentially you know significantly impacting transmission in schools and therefore reducing school absenteeism okay and you just mentioned um pims ts there anecdotally um i don't seem to have seen as much of that of late i don't know if that actually is is borne out in the numbers as well but um is is that dependent on the number of people who are vaccinated or is is omicron slightly different as you said in it's kind of the way it works and the patho kind of genicity of it yeah this is a really good question so one thing that um the most countries recorded is actually since since delta there's been um, substantially fewer cases of pims ts than anticipated because there have been you know many, many times more infections in children than there had been before then, but yet we've never reached the peak that we even had pre... We've never even reached the peak we had pre-Delta, despite having had many, many times more infection. Um, and anecdotally, people are saying the same thing about Omicron, although we don't yet have the the data to uh, to be able to, to see that. Um, so it does appear, uh, and I think that there's probably fairly broad agreement that there's something intrinsic to the virus that's changed since Delta, and I guess maybe now with Omicron, that that makes it less likely to cause uh, the hyperinflammatory syndrome. The other thing is that there is now actually pretty decent evidence from teenagers in the US that vaccination significantly reduces the risk of developing the hyperinflammatory syndrome. And it stands to reason, therefore, that previous infection would also reduce your risk of uh, developing uh, PIMS-DS were you to be reinfected. And we know that Omicron's causing, you know, tons of reinfections because, uh, again, previous infection confers very little protection against getting infected with Omicron, although it does provide significant protection against becoming unwell. It looks like it also provides protection from uh, developing PIMS-TS. So we're at a situation now where, uh, you know, the latest estimates are something like 80% of eight to 11 year olds have been infected. So I think we're we're probably looking to the in the future to seeing 
uh, a lot fewer cases, thankfully, of of PMCS than we've seen in the past. And I I can't imagine a scenario where we'd be going back to December twenty twenty, January twenty twenty one, and and ever seeing that level uh, of cases again, which is which is excellent, obviously. Yeah, a bit of, a bit of good news. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> And you said about um, kind of natural infection and, and the, the reductions in, in possible PIMS-TS from that as well. Do we, you know, from your vaccine research, and you said you do some kind of pre, pre-work, is there, an, you said 80% of children between ages of 5 and 12 have, have had infection. Do you know what that is across all ages? Or no, this is just from, that's the latest data from the Office for National Statistics who uh, do the population screening surveys. So they, previously it was only from age 16 up, um, whereas now they're they're also going down to age eight. So um, we, yeah, I, I think that generally we think that the rates decrease from uh, from there down to, down to infants. There's gradually, uh, you know, f- lower rates of seroprevalence, but I, it, I think we can comfortably say now the the majority of children have immunity, have some immunity to COVID or have been exposed to COVID either through immunisation or uh, infection. Uh, and interestingly, the ONS estimates were actually through, through the Omicron wave that infants had some of the highest rates of infection, um, which is really interesting. I guess um, a lot of that coming uh, being transferred from 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 parents. Um, so yeah, there's there is now quite a quite a lot of uh immunity in the pediatric population okay um and you would whilst we're talking about natural infection um and vaccines so if you if you know that your your child had had um had had covid um is would that count as you know potentially as their first dose of vaccination or is that how it works you know can that can that count towards their 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 two doses or um well i mean it it wouldn't count on their you know their nhs pass or or anything like that as a dose immunologically it, it looks very similar um and we you know we even know this from the 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 cov boost study um which we've been running in the uk even uh if you give uh, three doses to someone who's never had COVID, it looks very similar to giving two doses to someone who has had COVID. So Im- immunologically, um, it looks very similar having had an infection to having had a, a dose of vaccine. Um, actually, there's evidence that um, having an infection somewhere in your your mix of exposures um, which people are sort of terming hybrid immunity, so through a combination of immunization and uh, infection, probably provides the uh, the best protection um, in in terms of breadth uh, and you know binding affinity and and that sort of thing. Of course, the problem is there that in order to get hybrid immunity, you have to get infected, which is sort of the thing you're trying to avoid in the first place. But but what it does mean is that if if, if unfortunately you have been infected already. Um, and you're you've recovered the the upside to that is um, it does provide some protection probably quite good in protection um, and some vaccination on top of that provides even better protection more robust protection another bit of good news 
<laughs> yes, um, even more, I'm full of good news, always. <laughs> You're turning it around. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned quickly about long COVID, and I know we're going to do a, a, a pod in the future about long COVID, but specifically within your, um, your interest there, vaccines and long COVID, is there some data on that and preventing it, treating it, or that kind of thing? Um, not for children. There is for adults. Um, the literature is mixed, but on balance, it does appear that vaccination reduces your risk of developing long COVID, which um, for the purposes of most of this research is just defined as having persistent symptoms, you know, for example, 12 weeks uh, after your initial infection. Um, I can, I, I would imagine that it would have a similar effect for adolescents. I think we would probably see uh, teenagers who have been immunized to have a lower risk of developing persistent symptoms. I think for younger children, the, the data that's out there makes, um, the rates of persistent symptoms seem so low uh, I think it might be difficult to detect a signal or, of an impact of vaccination on that because, it, I mean, in some studies, it, 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 you almost can't see any difference at all between children who have had COVID and, and uh, those who haven't uh, when you compare sort of rates of symptoms over time. So um, it's, it, it, it's, it just simply is much less of an issue for, for uh, younger children. Uh, so I think it would be more difficult to demonstrate that uh, vaccination had uh, had an impact for them. The final question I was going to ask <laughs> was uh, just about yeah some of the questions that parents ask, um, and, and we know about uh, myocarditis, but there's lots of information out there that there are other side effects um, that we need to be worried about um, that come from various systems in place for detecting side effects. Can you talk a little bit? more about that are there is is there kind of um certain signs that come from uh these these databases that we look into more like myocarditis like the um the clots that are happening from the adenovirus ones uh that we can be comfortable would be investigated you know if if any of these ha happened yeah i mean so so they all get all the reason we have surveillance systems is because we take um, what we call post-marketing surveillance so seriously for population health for vaccines because we give them to millions of people, tens of millions, well, billions of people in this instance in a very short time frame. Um, but the problem is that that causes some issues in that Particularly, so for example, if you're 90 years old and you're vaccinating loads of 90-year-olds, 90-year-olds do die. And if you vaccinate all of them, some of them are going to die quite soon after you vaccinated them. Now, they would have died anyway, but now what has happened is someone has died soon after a vaccine. And of course, that has to get reported. Now, what the surveillance systems pick up everything because it's it's anything that happens in a short time window after vaccination and so you because so many people are getting them lots of stuff gets reported that has nothing to do with the vaccines and what the people monitoring these systems have to do is try and look for signals of events occurring in a higher rate after vaccination than would be expected to occur in that demographic within a certain time frame um, and that is that is tricky work but what we can be really, really reassured about is even 
events as rare as myocarditis or uh, this uh, thrombocytopenic thrombosis have been after vaccination have been detected. They've been picked up. And that is evidence that the systems are working really well. So we know there are some rare but important uh, adverse events to be aware of, uh, and and we know what they are. So if people are hearing of other strange uh, events um, that, you know, haven't come from official sources, I would just like to put people's mind at ease that if they were real, we would have detected them. If if they were real serious events, you would hear about them because uh, the systems are very transparent. You know, there are people whose jobs it is just to look for these adverse events. And we found some. The systems are working. Um, and we've made people aware. So that, you know, there is no cover up. Um, there's a, a very high degree of transparency about uh, any problems that might be found and how those risks and benefits need to be weighed up. So, uh, you know, I would just reassure people you can trust in the systems they are working. Um, if you hear things from Facebook or wherever else that haven't come from official sources, you don't need to worry about those. If we find problems, um, we make people aware and we address them. So, yeah, there's no need to be worried about any of the other things. Definitely. Thanks for clarifying that. Uh, so thank you for that, Alistair. I mean, this has been really illuminating. It's it's good to hear that. I mean, we, as clinicians, we're all aware about how processes are in place to pick up on these side effects. But I think there's a lot of misinformation out there for the general public and just having some voices of reassurance might go a long way to help with that or at least with certain though there'll always be certain um subpopulations out there who, who we might not be able to convince otherwise but i think we'll just have to accept that that is the way it is um just to before we bring things to a close i thought it would be useful to have just just thinking back over the pandemic um I'm, I'm just going to be a bit blunt with this question. What, what are your, do you have any reflections and thoughts over, over the course of the pandemic about how things have been done and how things have been handled and, and you know, what's, what's when, what we've learned from, from dealing with all of this? Um, I think what's become quite clear now is that we, we asked children to pay quite a high price for protecting other more vulnerable people um we knew quite early on really that the the risk to um any given child's health from from infection was was really low was you know commensurate to, to the other viruses that we live with year in year out you know it's not no risk but it but it's a risk that we've been comfortable living with for children for quite some time but nevertheless you know we've imposed pretty significant restrictions on their lives for quite a prolonged period of time Um, and many of these restrictions if not all of them have had a really disproportionate effect on the most vulnerable and disadvantaged children in our communities you know we've barely even scratched the surface really of of many of the harms that have come about because of that Um, and we I mean you can argue about whether this was worthwhile or whether the benefits of the you know what we've asked children to do were, were worth the costs but I think we need to recognise what those costs were and we need to actively be advocating for children now to pay them back. I think there's a lot that needs to be done 
urgently over the next few years to try and make up for some of the harms to education, children's mental health and their physical well-being that have occurred over the past two years, which aside from morally being the right thing to do, would are, are just obviously sensible long-term investments in the health and well-being of our country because these children are our future. And um, what we don't want is to leave a generation um, you know, with mental and, and physical um, harms going into their futures that are that are going to cost them and society at large uh, a huge amount. Uh, that is a burden that they do not need to carry. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just really, really important that uh, we as child health professionals are advocating to uh, pay children back for what they've given up over these past two years uh, to protect more vulnerable people. Thank you, Arthur. I, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. Um, Tom, I didn't know if you had any final words as well. Um, I just wanted to really just thank you for your time today, uh, Alistair. It's been really useful for me uh, to make sure that lots of the thoughts that I had beforehand um, are still standing true. Um, there was obviously some really um, sad um, effects that we've seen, um, but then also some positive things that we can take from um, vaccinations and the outlook moving forward. So um, hopefully we can end on that note. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And I just wanted to say thank you again to both Alistair and Tom for recording that for us. If you're interested in supporting Dragon Bites, please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Dragon where you can find out about contributing to our podcast. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.